Welcome everyone to the third episode of Teaching at the Top Black Men in Academia. This is a podcast that looks at interesting stories of black researchers doing pioneering work to inspire the next generation of young people to consider a career in research. We exist also to challenge the to, to challenge the narrative around um, BME underachievement and to show that we can achieve and that there are outstanding people and opportunities for people in, in research. And today our guest is Professor Darren Wallace, a Professor of Sociology and Education. He has a PhD from Cambridge and also has done education projects in rural Jamaica, mm-hmm. Rwanda, Ethiopia, and most importantly, he's worked extensively in London, in state schools, especially with um, Afro-Caribbean young people. So without further ado, it's really, really a pleasure to have um, Darren Wallace on the call um, this afternoon. Oh, great to be here. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. So I guess for everyone on the call, do you want to give us a bit of background? Did you just, uh, how did you get into this? Did you kind of always aspire from a young age to be, um, and I guess you're not from London and right. you're not from America. So I right. guess, you know, you've had, you've, you're, you've, you've gone through different places. So how, what, what, what's your journey been to where you've got to now? Uh, thanks for that question, Richard. So I'll start by saying that I, I never in my life anticipated that I would be an academic. Um, uh, frankly, if you see any five-year-olds walking around telling you they want to be academics, you should pray for them. Um, <laughs> right? So it, it's just not how my, my life, um, uh, that's not how I thought of my life or what thought of what I'd pursue. However, the very first profession I thought I would pursue in my life was teaching. Uh, I was seven years old um, in Jamaica when my teacher didn't show up for class that day and the assistant principal who was in charge came into our classroom and you know settled the room and then said no they're on teach the class and I had fun I had a that's when I realized actually I have a gift here um, and it would be good to sort of hone this over time I then had teachers who subsequently invited me to sort of co-teach with them over the summer um, for students who needed extra support and I was essentially a tutor, but I realized I really have a passion for teaching. So that's been clear to me for quite some time. I also grew up in the church and um, had a you know a number of folks who spoke to me about um, uh, developing a capacity for oratory and, and speaking. Um, and so that was also something else I was trying to hone in my mind. Um, uh, when I transitioned um, from uh, Jamaica, however, and moved to the United States, where I completed secondary school um, in New York City, I... Um, uh, then transitioned, uh, moved to, to university, and that's when I began studying research or pursuing research rather. Um, and I realized then too that I had a knack for this. I wrote a, a, a senior honors thesis looking at skin bleaching among men in Jamaica. So went back home and interviewed men who, you know, were bleaching their skin and trying to understand performances of masculinity, all while pursuing this what would be st- uh, stereotyped as these feminized fashioning and performances a care for the self and for the body, for the skin. And so I was really curious about the complexities of masculinity and how they're expressed in the Jamaican context. That's when I realized, no, 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 I could really do something with this research here. So if I were to couple my passion for um, uh, for teaching with uh, my investments in oratory, um, along with my uh, capacity for pursuing research, then maybe I could do some good in the world. Um, I wish I could tell you that I was thoroughly convinced that that's what I should do, um, but really, um, even at the end of uh, university studies, I, I didn't think that I would go into academia. Um, I should also say that while in uh, university, I was involved in investment banking, <laughs> right? So I had internships with Lehman Brothers. It's now closed, but I had three internships with Lehman Brothers because coming from an immigrant family, um, moving to to the U.S., um, I um, <laughs> my family said, you know, we didn't bring you here to look cute. You know, you, you, you <laughs> were brought it. here in order to make um, provide opportunities for the rest of the family. And truth be told, when I had my first internship with Lehman, and they, you know, I saw the contract of how much I would make, I I was um, I was so floored. I, I really, really was so floored about how much I would make. And then um, I thought that's how much I would make for over the whole summer, only to realize that's what I would make every two weeks. And so I was just completely floored. I was able to, you know, no one in my family, immediate or extended, had ever gone to university. Um, and my parents were um, 
you know, my dad was unemployed at, at, at various points and, and, and mom was trying to make ends meet. And so for me to have a job in college, that could pay the rent and ease life for my family. That's not something I wanted to step away from. Mm. Um, however, um, uh, upon recognizing really where my passions were, it is, it was in fact something I had to step away from. And I don't regret doing that. Um, but I just, the main point I want to signal here is that I didn't have a straightforward path to academia. Um, in many respects, it was circuitous, but it was always passion-led. It was always based on a reflection of what are my skills, what are the core gifts and talents um, that I have, and how can I use them to sort of mitigate exacerbating inequalities in society. For me, I cannot think of a more storied and more powerful profession um, than that of teaching, be it at the elementary uh, or be it at the primary, secondary or tertiary level, right? There is a long history of Black folks um, across the diaspora um, and in Sub-Saharan Africa who, who um, committed themselves to teaching as a political practice, as a, an exercise through which we can change the world. And that is the genealogy. That is the tradition within which I, I pursue my work now. Um, I, I can't say that I'm, I'm, I'm always living up to the expectation of some of the folks who motivated me, like Anna Julia Cooper or W.E.B. Du Bois or Carter G. Woodson or Marcus Garvey. I'm not, I, I can't say I'm, I'm, I'm doing exactly what they've done. However, they've blazed a trail that I'm trying to emulate. And so for me, as a Black man at the front of the classroom, at the tertiary level, for me, this is this is this is what it's about, and and part of that legacy is making sure that there are others, black women, black men, who also know, without any um, reservation, without any without much arguing, arguing or hectoring, that this is a profession they can pursue. All the range of structural and cultural barriers that suggest that academia is not for us are ones that we have to challenge, and so that's why I'm um, pleased to be a part of this podcast. Um, I hope I've answered your question, Richard. Yeah, no, I think I think that I think that was fantastic. I think you've covered a quite a lot of interesting points. So, uh, is it okay if we just maybe touch on some points again? Yeah. Absolutely. So I remember, I remember. So I remember. So like you said, you you've illustrated a really important point about the choice between academia and finance. I think that's mm -hmm. something that you know in African Caribbean families. I think the it's all about security and also about kind of helping out in the family, which is which is which is a fantastic thing. However, um, when you had to step away from Lehman Brothers, um, what, how were you able to convince your parents that, <laughs> this, that, that this, do you remember the conversation? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so do you remember, so how do you say, look, I've been able to do X, you know, you were able to provide so much for your family at the time. So how were you able to convince them that this has a greater purpose and they were then actually cool with it, but I won't spoil your story. <laughs> yeah, so I think for me, um, a few things happened. Um, perhaps the first and most uh, glaring and distinctive point was that it was having a deleterious impact on my mental health. I dreaded going to bed because I knew I'd have to wake up in the morning to go back to work. Like I just, that is just not the kind of, if you ever find yourself in that position in any job, it is the time to make a transition. And so I was in my late teens at the time and um, the work was so demanding. I was there from six o'clock in the morning. I didn't get home till about nine o'clock at night at some point, having food to eat, prepping for work the following day. It was not enjoyable, um, particularly I'd say the last year or so when things got pretty intense. Um, so that was the first clear sign for me. Another thing that was really significant for me was I, I um, studied abroad in South Africa for six months. I went first to do some work um, uh, with a research organization and then studied abroad at the University of Cape Town and the University of KwaZulu-Natal. And um, while I was there, remember, I grew up in Jamaica, right? The first time I left Jamaica was to go to the United States. The, 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 the next time I left the United States, or the first time I left the United States, was to go to South Africa. When I went to South Africa, I realized that what I'd relegated to specific personal problems I had in Jamaica or, you know, structural inequalities that could be relegated to Jamaica were, in fact, global structural issues. Mm -hmm. Driving by certain parts of Cape Town and recognizing or feeling like a tinge of deja vu relative to what places I'd seen in Jamaica, for me, brought um, blackness in a global space to the fore. Right. For me to um, recognize that, you know, the, the nature of inequality women were experiencing in Jamaica wasn't radically different from what I was seeing among black women in South Africa was utterly transformative for me. Mm -hmm. completely and I couldn't as I wrestled with those questions about why inequality exists I could not help but ask the question why am I contributing to this inequality or why am I not doing something mm -hmm. about it Very so that for me was the motivating factor to sort of think about how do I you know it's all right to acknowledge that inequalities exist but what do you do about them 
Mm-hmm. Right? It's all right to acknowledge that people are hungry and sick, but what are you going to do about it? And so for me, that was not simply a, a profound political question. As a person of faith, it was also a theological question. Right? And so for me, that gets me to the point of how I was able to convince my parents. So when I came <laughs> yeah. back home, when I came back home, uh, I had a decision to make about whether or not I was going to accept an internship with Lehman in London over the following summer. And I told my parents, and as I told them, I said no. And what was their reaction? I don't, reaction? I don't know if there are any people with Jamaican parents on the call, but Jesus, peace. I mean, these people, <laughs> they were not having it. You know, my dad's pretty even keel. He was, he was pretty calm. My mother was like, why would you do that? Why, why, why would you do that? If, if, if you want to change the world, you can't change it later. It was just, there were all these yep. things about, and, and there was wisdom in what she was saying. Like, in fact, you know, you, there was wisdom in what she was saying and I understood her perspective, but personally, I felt a profound weighty sense of responsibility that there was something I needed to do in that moment and that my life's trajectory would be different. And so um, I shared with them, hey, look, you all are people of faith and you all have stepped out on faith. Mom, you stepped out on faith to go to the United States, right? Not knowing what your life would be like, right? I do feel like this is a moment for me to step out and really trust. And it it was, it appealed to their self-interest. It was a kind of logic that would rest with them. It was a kind of thing that they could pray about <laughs> and, <laughs> and it worked for them. So that, that that's how I was able to convince them. And not only that, um, uh, Richard, I think the, the measure of, of success and support I was able to garner after making that decision is one that continues to marvel uh, me, right? So the sort of support I got at university, how well I did in my studies when I shifted from economics to sociology and African yeah. diaspora studies, the sort of research I was able to pursue, all of which was fully funded, right? Um, you know, how I graduated from university with honors, like all of those things I was able to say, I think it's because I made this decision and I followed my heart. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so one key thing, and I'll close with this, was there was a, um, a fellowship um, that um, one could apply for. Um, uh, Thomas J. Watson, who was the founder of IBM, uh, the computer company, technology company, um, they have a foundation and they sponsor 50 final year students from universities in all across the United States to go and pursue their passion around the world. So they, they, you know, they pick 50. And I, I was a finalist and I was one of the 50 they picked. Now, I kept saying to my parents, I don't think I was one of the 50 picked because I was cute. I don't think I am. I don't think they think it was, you know, I was one of the 50 picked because, you know, I was just so talented. I, I don't think that's the case. I think that when you invest in pursuing your passions, favor finds you, right? And, and that was it for me. I think if I'd stayed okay. in banking, yeah, I would have made the money. But here's the interesting thing. The very year I was pursuing this passion around the world of, you know, you know, which was research-based, um, looking, and I can talk about what that was in a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's this very year that Lehman Brothers shut down. That's the year it went bankrupt. So if I'd stayed with Lehman, I would have been out of a job regardless. And so all of that allowed them to say, hey, look, when we say that we have a measure of guidance or an intuition or faith, it's things that we have to put into practice in, in, at key points. Um, and it was with all that logic that I was able to convince my parents that that was the right thing to do. I think that is fantastic. I think for the younger people in the in the group and even us at my age, I think um, there's a, there's a lot of lessons around packaging, <laughs> packaging, and also just stepping out on faith and kind of the success will come. But I think also it's kind of like you have to be convinced in your spirit first before the manifestation. So I think that's really really good. So I just want to touch on one more thing before we go into the next oh, question. Yeah, yeah. Is absolutely. so you mentioned. I think it's very, very important for young people as well. And I think in terms of research as well, what they can do now. Um, mm. How did you come into contact with this rich legacy that we have as black people? How did mm. you come into contact with that legacy of teaching? Because obviously, like in England, you know, there's a narrative around BME underachievement. Oh, mm-hmm. there's only 1% of professors. Oh, you know, um, you're less likely from uh, a certain background to go to a Russell Group University. And then mm-hmm. funding is just a bit of a, another interesting case. So we won't get into that. But so how did you tap in for the young people who are kind of like, OK, this sounds amazing. How did you tap into this rich, uh, you know, the boys? How did you tap into... Um, so even in Jamaica, like, you know, you have so many different pioneers. How did you tap into that and find inspiration? Yeah, um, I appreciate that. I, I have to start first with, um, um, is that a 
complex question. Um, but for me, the truth, truth be told, if I were to answer this question honestly, I would say it started with my father. So I didn't grow up, um, I grew up in a household of faith, but in my early years, my, my father was, um, didn't adhere to the same faith tradition, right? So I grew up going to church with my mother and I would come home to see my father reading a book about Malcolm X, listening to Bob Marley or Peter Tosh and asking very political questions. Right? <laughs> and so um, truth be told, this sort of deep investment in um, understanding black educational heritage or a genealogy of, of black excellence, some would, some would put it, or more precisely this, this, this history of black teaching is one that I think he planted those seeds for me quite early, that it was okay mm -hmm. in that context to be curious about black history, not for an exam, but for the purposes of life as an exam or life as a test. And so for me, that's, I, I would have to credit him and say that's where it started. Um, I would also have to say, and this might be non-traditional, but you know, I grew up in, a, in an environment where um, I feel people of Rastafari heritage asked profound questions about African history. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even when I was going to school, I remember, you know, Rasta people said, them, them, them tell about Emperor Haile Selassie, and them tell yeah, about, yeah. like, what are they teaching you? What is this colonial education giving you? And I, that, that, again, wasn't as systematic or formal. I never went to a, an Afrocentric Saturday school as some <laughs> in the UK, but yeah, people yeah. were asking those questions. So the seeds were there. Mm. When, I tried, when I was in university and I transitioned from, um, from economics to sociology, I realized that sociology in many respects too was a um, colonial, um, often a historically white field. Mm -hmm. And I felt as though if I were going to be true to myself and to the questions that concerned me about Jamaica, about Caribbean economic, social and political development, that I needed something beyond what sociology offered. But, mm -hmm. Right. And so that's when I, I actually created the major at my university um, for myself. It was an independent major on African diaspora studies. It did not exist. I had to convince the university administration that this was something that they should do. I had to convince other faculty members and craft a proposal that was ultimately signed by what, what I think in the UK context would probably be the pro vice chancellor. Right. Mm -hmm. That's how it worked at my university. Yeah. Um, and it was in that process that I recognized this sort of genealogy that Du Bois was in fact um, one of the first and leading sociologists in the United States, but wasn't credited as such. He's known as a historian, but many of the methodologies, many of the methods that we know in sociology that we use now uh, were first um, pioneered by W.E.B. Du Bois, but this history of this history of white supremacy in the field marginalized him. Um, and Alden Morris and um, uh, a number of other scholars in the U.S. have written about this more recently. Uh, but that's when I started uncovering that tradition. In relation to this heritage on teaching, I'd say that's ongoing learning for me, right? Um, you know, it, you know, a, a friend of mine um, has just written a book on Carter G. Woodson and noted Carter G. Woodson's influence on teachers all across the South in the United States. People know um, James Weldon Johnson. If you were to, for instance, if you know the Black National Anthem in the United States, lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven rings. Um, I would sing it for you now, but I don't want to deaf you. <laughs> but the reality is um, James Weldon Johnson first wrote that piece as a poem for his students. He was a principal. Mm. And he wrote that as a poem for his students because Booker T. Washington was coming to visit his school. It was years later that he partnered with his brother, who was a piano player, who brought, put that poem to song. That is the tradition I'm talking about. And if I were to think about it, if I paid attention, a lot of my teachers in Jamaica were teachers because their parents were teachers or their grandparents wanted to be teachers, but they were prohibited from pursuing the profession. So for me, my understanding of this history is not based on textbooks exclusively. It's rooted in the questions people in my community were asking me. And I say that because the most powerful research we can do in academia is not based on heady theorizing um, or abstract um, empirical engagements. It's about listen to what people around us are asking us. Listen to what the black, our black neighbors, black leaders are asking, the black young people are asking us. That's where my research questions came from. And I'm grateful that I grew up in a working class community that was so collegial and engaging um, that people wouldn't see you go to school and not ask a question, where I learn? What, what, what are you gonna do? <laughs> exactly, right? exactly, that's exactly. all of, the, that's part of my heritage. That's part of the lineage I'm talking about, about a community that's concerned, not simply with achievement, but with excellence. Mm -hmm. that, and not simply with how you perform in a test, but with what you do with what you've learned on that test, right? And that includes, of course, noted figures like Du Bois and, um, uh, Ella Baker and a number of others um, 
uh, Nani of the Maroons, and you see her picture in my background at the top, for instance. I keep these are heroes from Jamaica. I keep them in the back to rem remind me, and I have mm. pictures around of my family because that is my heritage. And it's not just the celebrated figures; it's the ordinary people. My father, the Rastafari men near near who live near my home, the the teachers I had who saw something in me, right? The the, the folks who 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 supported me. I'll close with this. You know, immediately after I graduated from university, I um, went back home to Jamaica to teach. And I taught in a, a remote rural community. And that community I taught in was the, uh, I lived with my grandparents. So I went back all the way home <laughs> and stayed with them. And the school I taught in was the very school that my mother went to when she was a child and the wow. very school my grandmother cleaned for a living. Wow. I can't think of a more profound, a more engaging experience. And my grandmother would walk and she would come and bring me food or a corn that she would roast that she would just express the pride that she felt that I was a teacher, right? Um, knowing full well that that's not a profession she had the opportunity to, to pursue, that it's a school building she had to clean, but to look now two generations later and sort of see um, her legacy um, was moving for her and it remains moving for me, right? And I would just encourage everyone, if you're interested in research, start that research in your own family, interview, the elders and relatives, you know, people are talking about wheel rush. Go talk to those people who are in your family who came, you know, if you're second generation or third generation in, in London or any other part of the UK, go ask them, why did you come? What motivated you? What did you experience? Record them, document them, keep your own history, mm. right? People are asking about black history as in it needs to be in a textbook. And indeed we have a, a shortage of, 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 of um, or limited documentation of the complexities of black history to the extent that we see it in the UK context, it's largely 20th century history as if black people were not in the United Kingdom in the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries, right? We know exactly. that we cannot be relegated to sort of 20th century history in Britain, right? Yeah. Um, that's, that's part of the colonial narrative that Britain wants to tell itself, this sort of colonial amnesia that, you know, black people are a sudden, you know, a sudden imposition or a sudden, sudden arrivals in the UK. That's just not true. It just arrived in the 50s. <laughs> right. Right, what, what, that this sort of wind rush as origin narratives, as some historians put it, is just, it's a farce. But what I think we ought to do to push back against that is not simply to ask that our curriculum be different in schools. It's also for us um, to interview those leaders in our families, in our churches, in our civil society organizations, and keep those histories for ourselves, to use them as motivators for the futures we wish to see and pursue. Again, I hope I answered your question. Yeah, I think I think I think there was there's so many levels and gems of wisdom. I really encourage everyone to re-listen to this on 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 Spotify, because he is telling us some really really profound truths around knowing your own history. One, and um, also not even even no matter what age you're at, and don't necessarily rely on what they teach us, especially in London. You know, it's, you know, as part of my master's dissertation, I looked at. Um, black British history I think you know after a while you realize that what is being taught isn't really the tr the full story of black British history in the UK and like um, Professor Wallace said it goes back to the 16th century so definitely definitely so much profound wisdom here so there's one more thing that I want to uh, touch on before we open it up for questions and I'm sure I'm really, really excited about everyone on the call and I hope you are you're ready with your questions or you have time to answer your questions. Um, but the final thing I wanted to talk about because it's really, really exciting and it shows the personal connections for me. Um, I read um, Professor Wallace's, um, well, parts of his PhD thesis at Cambridge and it really, really inspired me because I was at Cambridge at the time and I was trying to look at critical race theory and I was trying to look at something uh, interesting. And I just, I couldn't find a UK context. I couldn't find something that was um, just profound and interesting because obviously you want to write a good dissertation. Mm -hmm. And I came across his paper. And for those of you who are considering academia, what Professor Wallace is saying about excellence. This is, I read, this was only like a fraction of his data. Like, I think it was like, yeah, not even 50% of his data. And he wrote a paper. Um, and if, if you want to talk about some of your experiences at uh, Cambridge, you can. But he wrote a paper for his uh, PhD and it became, he, probably, he, he, was, he published it and it was only half. And he talked about the narratives within 
um, for African Caribbeans in, especially no, so Caribbeans in London, and how the, we can help each other. So in school, you know, you have different um, middle class, you have uh, upper class, but how we can actually unite together in schools. And he talked about um, our cultural capital, which you know, in Britain, you don't necessarily always hear. It was. A phenomenal paper. Um, I would definitely recommend uh, you read the paper. I will share details afterwards, but or, or I can put it in the chat. Um, but I guess I've uh, lost. No, no, I haven't lost my point. But what I, what I wanted to say is, could you just basically um, tell us a bit more about your research and what you, and what were the key findings? Uh, yeah, thanks for that, Richard. And I'm I'm grateful that um, uh, that's the reason you reached out. Um, in fact, that's how we got connected, as you noted before. Exactly. Um, I, um, you know, writing that paper was very difficult <laughs> and I'll be able to sort of weave in some of my Cambridge experience here. I think it was, a, it was an uphill battle to, um, to write that paper because there wasn't much support for some of the arguments I was making, right? Uh, I think there was a lot, I think I, if I'd written, uh, or if I, if I wrote a paper trying to convince folks about the divisions, um, among black people. Um, or, you know, tensions or inequalities or damage narratives. I think people would be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, sure. But that's not the, I didn't have that um, investment. And actually, frankly, that's not what the data suggested. Um, and so it was very, very challenging. A lot, a lot of pushback from um, uh, more senior folks. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, around whether or not... Um, uh, this was something, whether or not this was the right analysis. Thankfully, I had a really tremendous um, PhD advisor who was just first rate and absolutely phenomenal um, and uh, really supported the analysis. And not, so here's the point. Um, in, 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 in my research, um, so I'm a comparative ethnographer and I look at um, the contrasting educational outcomes of Black Caribbean youth in London and New York City. So since the 19, since the 1920s in the United States, or let me step back, since the 1950s in the United Kingdom, Black Caribbeans have been deemed an underachieving, underachieving minority relative mm -hmm. to, to other groups. Whereas in the United States, since the 1920s, Black Caribbeans have actually been deemed a high achieving Black mother minority relative to African-Americans and other groups. However, in both contexts, it's purported that there's something intrinsic to their culture that produces these outcomes. Well, this cross-national study that I've been pursuing calls into question the significance of culture and spotlights instead, or in tandem, the importance of national policy context, the order of migration, um, and cultural capital in shaping the divergent outcomes of the same ethnic group, right? So I'm saying that there has something to do with how Britain engaged Black people, how Britain welcomed Black Caribbean people that was somewhat different from how they were received in the United States, that the opportunity structures were different. In other words, this is not endemic to, intrinsic to, nor does it reflect anything sort of pathological about Black Caribbean people in Britain. It has to do with the nature of the social structure. It has to do with, sorry, I'm getting too passionate. Let me calm down. It has to do with the No, nature. no, 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 appreciate, appreciate. You can start again, because I think this is, this is critical, because this is yeah. the reason why, this is the reason why mm -hmm. too many young black people are being put in vocational skills, even though they, right. they're, they're, they're more able. This right. is why, you know, you know mm -hmm. I'll get money if, you know, for East London Connect, if I say, you know, I'm working with disadvantaged young people. Right, but I've, right, I've, right. I've, I've made, I've made the, the conscious effort to say, no, I work with young people of African heritage, African heritage to achieve mm -hmm. their full potential. I don't know about, well, there is disadvantage, but that's not my narrative. So um, feel free to repeat, to proclaim and uh, tell us your story. Yeah, and, and, and you, you all have to forgive me. This is kind of, um, um, yeah, I'm, I'm incredibly passionate about the research and incredibly passionate about what I teach. So, um, but at the same time, I want to um, recognize it's a podcast and sort of keep it as even keel as possible. No, um, no, no, it's okay. <laughs> I, um, I, I think this is, that was really crucial for me um, to bear in mind. Um, and so um, my research, um, comparative research like this has never been done um, in relation to Black youth, Black Caribbean youth in particular across the US and UK. The paper that you read, uh, Richard, was just based on the data in London, right? And it was just looking mm -hmm. at class divisions, the racialization of class divisions. Um, and what I found was that um, some teachers would pit Black middle class students and their success um, against their Black working class peers. So when speaking to a Black working class student who, say, didn't do well on an exam, 
um, they would say, you know, if this person can do it, if this other black student can do it, why, why, why can't you do it, right? And what I found is that rather than um, uh, middle class students were willing to sort of name the measure of class privilege they endured that enabled their success in defense of their working class peers. In other words, they would say, don't use me as a prop to sort of chide or, 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 or use me as a whip of sorts to sort of get working class people into shape, right? This is, you know, we are actually experiencing something quite similar, but we have different class resources. And what you're pursuing is a profound racialized project, right? These are the nuanced ways that, you know, folks articulate racism in schools, right? All the while using classism to prop up that formula, right? And so um, part of what I, the, the, the research underscored was this sort of um, cross-class coalition that I saw among students of middle-class and working-class heritage in, uh, in, in an attempt to sort of challenge teachers and their engagement um, with working-class students. And I also note in the research that the black middle-class students were not pursuing this because they were somehow altruistic. They were not pursuing that sort of cross-class coalition because, you know, they, they were just some, you know, magical students. They did it because um, they were part of what I call the multi-class minded middle class. Pardon me, I don't call them that. Another scholar does, and I use that in my work, the multi-class minded middle class. And that's because the nature of the class structure in Britain is such that black middle class people, you know, and numbers are limited but growing, are often part of working class families. Right? Even if you have a sub, you know, you know, you have a, a unit where you're, you know, middle class on one end, you will find that you have working class relatives that still need your help and support. That has to do again with the social structure of Britain. Again, this is not about pathologies. This is not about who black people are or you know, we just don't work hard. No, no, no. It has to do with the nature of the opportunity structures that even as we pursue social mobility, race and racism in the British society limits how many people get access to those opportunities, limits how many of us get to go to university, limits how many of us get to go to Russell Group institutions. Um, and even when we do move out or we do decide, hey, I want to move from, I don't know, um, let me just pick something. I want to move from, uh, you know, Tottenham and I want to go to Hithergree or I want to go to, you know, um, name some other leafy suburb anywhere right uh, eltham <laughs> eltham there you go the connections we have the connections you have with um uh with your family means that you are deeply acquainted still with the nature of um uh working class life right um or at least connected to it in some way so these students saw their relatives in their peers right and again it wasn't a i need to pull you up or i need to help you that, that wasn't the narrative it was we will not stand by while you use class to divide us when we recognize that racism is at work. That for me was uh, significant because it, at the time it showed me what politics, not with a capital P, but what how peeps, young people can organize in a school in order to challenge the curriculum or challenge what teachers are doing, right? That the sort of resistance that we hear about is often about students not behaving, you know, not showing up for class, but they're also the more quiet, subversive forms of resistance that's pushing against the sort of paternalism, the pathologization that students register, teachers trying to advance in a classroom, right? And that doesn't get documented in research. When young people, when Black Caribbean people are standing up for their own rights in quiet um, and, and, and res respectful quote unquote ways, we don't document that. But I wanted to do that in this I want, I needed to do that. And thankfully, you know, when I published this paper, I don't know why I picked the journal that I did. I actually, in retrospect, hadn't done enough research on that journal. It was after it was published that people reached out to me and said, do you realize what you did? And I said, what do you mean? They said, you, I went to a conference in, at Bristol and uh, Professor Tarek Madud um, came up to me and said, that, I, really read, I read the paper and I really liked it, but I need you to know that it's not easy for early career scholars to get a piece published in that journal. I said, what, what do you mean? He said, I mean, Duran, surely you must know, it's, it's the flagship it's journal of the British Sociological Association. Yeah, exactly. yeah. And so for me, it was, that's, that's when I said, oh, you know, I went and looked at the impact factor of the journal and realized it was, you know, a, um, to some a big deal. But I'm grateful for um, the young people who were able to share their perspective on their views. And the, the underlining argument here is that um, in order to push against racism in schools, in order to challenge measures of paternalism and pathologization, it often means we have to be much more concerted and, concerted and collaborative in our engagements to push against the grain. And that, that is happening in quiet ways that doesn't get documented in research and doesn't often get recognized in the media. That's yeah. important.
Richard, if I may, just two quick things that come back to my mind I want to share, and that's very specific to the UK context, because you were, you know, going back to the sort of genealogy of folks who have been teachers. You know, so a, a number of people know um, if you watch Small Axe, which I, I if you have it's, watched, it's really Small good. Axe, it's really good. You have to go watch <laughs> Small Axe, right? It was on BBC One, um, and it's I still I still think it's available on Netflix. Um, but you know, people uh, in in Small Axe, particularly the first, fourth episode, you saw specific references to uh, a leader named Bernard Cord, who hold on, because I have a book here. He wrote a, a pamphlet, um, and it's published in a, I mean, it's published on its own, but it's also in another book um, that uh, I read quite often. And the, the, the piece he published was called How the West Indian Child is Made Educationally Subnormal. How the West Indian Child is Made Educationally Subnormal, published in 1971. Um, that pamphlet is what the parents were referring to. He was a Grenadian activist, and he wrote this book. He was a youth worker in London. In fact, he wasn't even from London. He, 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 was, he, he came from Grenada and he actually studied at the university at where I now work. He studied at Brandeis University and then went to the UK to pursue a master's degree, I believe at Sussex University. And while doing that, stepped out of the university context and became a youth worker. And when he recognized what was happening to black Caribbean children, he wrote a book. Hmm. That has no, that was the piece that was being referenced. It is the most significant, most um, important piece of black educational literature. And it's a pretty short piece that he wrote not for academia, he wrote it so that ordinary parents could read it to recognize what was happening to Black Caribbean children in our schools, right? That's the legacy and the genealogy I'm talking about. But similarly, if you want to get into the academic um, dimension, you can't talk about a more celebrated um, Black academic in the British context than Stuart Hall. Um, Stuart mean, Hall who yeah, yeah. was, you know, um, a, a really, you know, left Jamaica from a lower, um, middle-class um, background, came from a biracial family, you know, lived, you know, went to, to Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship from Jamaica and decided he would stay in the UK context. He was one of the founding figures of, of cultural studies. Um, I mean, if you speak to anybody who studies Black history around the world, Stuart Hall's name comes up over and over again. In fact, one of my mentors said that she went to a conference, I think at Princeton, and Stuart stood up to ask a question. And when he stood up to ask, everybody stood up to clap him and he hadn't even said anything. Wow. because he was just known for his generosity of thought mm. his mode of engagement in terms of gleaning the best ideas from everyday ordinary people long story short Stuart hall is a very noted cultural studies scholar and sociologist um who frankly was uh, uh, didn't even finish his phd right um but was such a gifted um scholar uh, or not but and was such a gifted scholar but here's the thing people don't know if you look at Stuart hall's work Stuart hall was actually a teacher after he finished his master's degree, he was actually, he actually taught. So there were students learning from one of the most brilliant black minds across the African diaspora. And he was teaching them in London schools and they had no idea. This is before he went big. Again, that is part of the genealogy that we don't teach about black teaching or that people don't know about the history of black teaching in Britain that I find to be really significant and that motivates me. So I didn't want to lose those points because I want to give answers because this happens quite a bit too. People talk about black history as American history, as Caribbean history in, yeah, yeah. in Britain. And part of what I try to do in my work is to pay attention to um, uh, post-colonial heritage and experiences from the Caribbean as experienced through the American empire, but also as propagated more centrally um, through the British empire. Right, so I tried to keep all three connected, and I wanted to find examples that were unique or specific to the British context, so that we don't think that this genealogy of this rich radical tradition on teaching in British context from Black women and men um, is unique to American history or Caribbean history. It has its profound roots in Britain. Fantastic. So the final question before I open it up to everyone to ask questions. Um, try to keep the questions brief but yet the, fa the final question that i have to professor wallace that we've discussed so oh wait a minute i'm, I'm sorry i'm seeing some people here so I'm, I'm actually seeing two people on the call that i that i recognize okay wow, wow. <laughs> that i recognize both of whom are, are profound examples of the kind of heritage and tradition i'm talking about um one yeah, um highlight uh, them please i i I'm, 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 i don't want to call out their names without permission but okay um, one's a, a very gifted principal, and another is a very gifted youth worker. Again, in this context, working to transform the lives and experiences of young people, and they've been doing that since 
I met them in the UK to begin with. And so it's I'm acknowledging them here to say that this history is ongoing, this legacy continues, and there are people right in your midst. And if I have their permission to call their names, I will, but they're on the call and they're amongst you. Um, and they're part of creating the future um, uh, that you all want to see. Um, and they're rooted in this tradition of um, black teaching um, and, and engaging with young people that is, that is profound. Okay, no, thank you so much. And if you guys want to, um jump on the um jump off mute um i'm happy to like ask you for you to, to help to make a contribution but fine i just wanted to get on one final point before i open it up because i'm sure people have a lot of questions um is can you quickly share about what you have done in your university to make sure that young people um from undergraduate and people from the local community are involved or getting close or developing the skills for um research um yes i'm happy to do that um i'm pretty i'm very very clear about why i'm in academia i'm not in academia because i have an abstract interest in ideas i love ideas i love theory um, um but I'm, I'm 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 very clear that i'm here i'm in the academy to change it i'm in the academy because i want to see more folks um uh, i want to see more folks who um not only look like me in the academy but people who have an investment, a deep investment in um, transforming the culture and structures for a mission or funding, right? Um, I want people at the table who can transform that, right? Um, bear with me one second. So in my, I've made that very, very clear from the moment um, I got hired. Um, and so very, very briefly, we, we um, I've been working with undergraduates. I've um, been trying to create a pipeline to get more undergraduates into universities. And I feel fortunate that a number of my students know are pursuing PhDs in a variety of top universities in you know, women's gender and sexuality studies, in black studies, in sociology and history um, uh, to various um, university, at, at various universities, right? Um, but what I'm doing now um, is pulling students together as part of my research team. So I run a research lab um, that's focused on race, race and equity in education. Um, and to give you a concrete example of what we've done, um, I have um, uh, uh, I have a um, over the summer, um, or actually from last March, schools were closed um, here in Massachusetts, um, and. Uh, the local school district. Um, what are you manifesting? Uh, so can you uh, can you go on mute briefully, please? Um, so, Professor Wallace, do you want to continue? Sure. About, so, about, about your research lab and also what you the project you started um, in summer. Yes. Yeah, so um, the school district interviewed or not interviewed from they surveyed uh, nearly 20,000 families all across the city of Boston and they did not have capacity to examine those surveys in great detail. I, I didn't at the time either. Um, and so I'm uh, I, I knew I didn't have the, the capacity to pursue that. My wife was in the latter part of her pregnancy um, and I just knew I needed to um, uh, focus on the family. There's no way I could examine all those survey results on my own. So I pulled together over the summer my students, um, both my PhD students, my master's students, and five five undergraduates, all of whom are black or brown, mm -hmm. right? Because what I'm trying to do is to train them to go into academia. So if I can help them understand how you can use survey data to help um, support a local school district or to produce outcomes that impact families in the city of Boston, because they were trying to figure out should they should schools reopen and if so, how? Um, we spent the entire summer analyzing the data very, very carefully. Um, and I continue to work with those students now. Some of those students, two of them I know are applying to PhD programs soon, and they will join um, a group of students that I've mentored through the process so far of getting into PhD programs. Um, that for me is an example of more of the kind of work I think that needs to happen in academia. Um, we, we often celebrate an individual or, you know, um, we're curious about what one individual has done and we create these exceptional narratives about why individuals are gifted. And, 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 and that doesn't really represent reality. We are more powerful if we work as part of a team. And so my research lab, we work on common problems together. We work on research projects together. We write together. Um, and in the process, we are able to have a more meaningful um, impact on, on communities that we would individually.
right? Um, relatedly, I think it's important for me to say that, you know, while I'm here talking with you, I always say to folks, I hope when you hear my voice that you hear my father's voice, I hope you hear my mother's voice, I hope you hear my grandmother's voice, because they too are part of that team that makes it possible for me to be here. I hope you hear my wife's voice, I hope you hear my children's voice, because they are part of the team that makes it possible for me to be here. In fact, even in, in my time at, you know, Cambridge, you know, I was part of, a, I don't want to call us the three musketeers, or maybe the three stooges, but we were, you know, three black men who, one was from South Africa, one was from Chicago, and here I was from the Caribbean. And we were friends trying to figure out in history, in anthropology and in education and sociology, how can we center more black perspectives in our classes? And we supported one another and all three of us, interestingly enough, are in academia right now. Right, one's a dean, the other is an associate professor, and I'm an assistant professor. Right, again, that's a <laughs> oh. team that makes it work. And yeah, so yeah. I hear that to say that when we pursue, if we're thinking about how to make research opportunities available for students on this call or for other young people who are going to academia, it's about establishing teams. It's not about identifying an individual. Why are some of our students going off to, I don't know, um, to Russell Group institutions only to question themselves about why they're there if they belong? Why are they going to, to Oxford and Cambridge feeling as though they don't belong? It's often because they're isolated. Mm. They're not part of a team. And so if we can establish a team, um, we can in increase rates of, 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 um, of, 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 of retention and not simply retaining those students, but we can enhance their success, the quality of their contributions, the nature of their leadership can somehow be different. Um, that was a mouthful, but um, all right. that's relevant to me. Um, and I want to open up the floor now for questions. Yeah, so so um, we've reached almost at the end of the recording, but I would love for some, I would, I, I would love for questions for people. So if everyone's happy to hang around for another 10, 15 minutes, I will, um, I would love to, open up for questions. Professor Wallace, do you have 10, 15 minutes for questions? Yes, yes, yeah, yes. So um, if you would like to unmute your mic and um, so I'll probably um, close the official recording so that we, so, so I've respected your time and that the podcast doesn't take too long. However, I am really, really excited to open it up for questions. So um, please either private message me or put it in the group or um, so Professor Wallace can see, but or just um, in an orderly fashion, just unmute your mic, introduce yourself, and then um, keep your questions quite brief, please. Um, I just wanted to, uh, yeah, I just wanted to um, to uh, ask um, Darren Wallace if he thinks that um, private schools like help you get into like universities and like. Mm institutes like if it like makes a difference yeah yeah Carney, thank you so much for the question and great to see you and, and your family um with you i think it it, it um that, that's a, a complex question um i i the short answer is yes i think it can help i i do think that um uh, unfortunately the, the the processes of admission at places like oxford bristol cambridge etc are such that they have greater understanding and sadly greater appreciation for applicants from private schools than they do from state schools, right? That has to do with the nature of the structure itself, right? However, in, in acknowledging what exists and acknowledging that inequality, I don't want you to read that as my advocating that students need to go to private schools. That's not what I'm saying. We can and we should think about the quality of our state schools, right? And, and what needs to happen in those state schools for all our children. Right? We should have an admission process. We should have a university admission system that welcomes students from all backgrounds. And based on my understanding of some of the more recent shifts in, in British higher education, they are creating schemes and programs to welcome students from a variety of backgrounds to visit those schools. But I never want us to be complacent about representation or about schemes of, oh, come and visit. No, 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 the admission structures need to change, right? Um, and so when you go to visit, I would you know, push to, to ask about some of those structures. Um, uh, I, I went to state schools my whole life. I did. I, I don't know, you know, and I went, right? I had brilliant, excellent teachers who pushed me in state schools. Black That's teachers right. who would never allow me to compromise and accept a B when if they knew I was capable of an A. Right. And so I, I, I just want to be really clear. I think there's no one fixed formula for all students in terms of teaching and learning. I can't say to everybody, some of our students need more individualized attention. For some students, they may excel more in a private school than a state school. But state schools are public resources that should be available to everybody. They should be high quality and we should push for them to be so. 
um, I'm sharing all this um, uh, currently to say that um, I hope you're able to find success irrespective of where you are, be it a state school, be it a private school, be it a supplementary school, which again is another key part of Black British educational heritage, right, of Black teachers who said, you know, the state school or these schools over here are not going to help our kids. Let's create, uh, you know, a collaborative where they meet on Saturdays and be motivated and support them. Whatever you need to do to pursue the success that's um, uh, of interest to you, I would say do it. But I don't want you to ever believe that you can't access that through your state schools, right? Fantastic. Or that you shouldn't access them through your state schools, right? Um, it, to the extent that that happens, that's part of the, I'm sorry, that is part of the political economy of schooling. That is when, when we disinvest from state schools and we take ourselves to private schools, state schools get less funding because there are fewer pupils in those schools. Yep. Right. And they have fewer resources when teachers think the same way that, oh, you know, I'll have a better teaching experience in a private school. Then we have teachers, the most um, what's the best way to put this, the most experienced teachers with the, the heart of black students. If they leave, what will happen to our children? Yeah. Right. So an investment in state schools is important. Again, I don't think it's the only way, but I, I, I certainly hold a firm footed engagement that state schools are public resources. Um, and that I want everyone to be able to pursue them and be successful, right? What we see here in the US um, in state schools, and we call them public schools here in the US, but what we see here is that in a number of our state schools, taking Boston, um, where I live, Boston in Massachusetts, not in the Midlands, where y'all are, <laughs> um, but take it, take where I am, um, the, the most, um, we have our, our, our urban schools or our, our city schools are comprised largely of Black and brown students. People think of the US as a predominantly white um, country, and it is, but um, our teaching, um, uh, black and brown students constitute over 50, 52% of students in, in traditional public schools or state schools. And yet the teaching force doesn't match that. The vast majority, over 80% of teachers in the United States are white. So we see a mismatch. And the same is true in the United Kingdom. I mean, I could yeah. quote those figures for you if you're interested. However, what we find is that take, take um, the demographics out of it, the, the 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 students with the greatest need get access to teachers who are the least qualified. Yeah. And that is because of limited or constrained investments in state schools. Yeah. Is it, do you understand what I'm saying? Do you, do, you, do you get what I'm saying? So I want you to pursue success anywhere, right? And if you and your mom think that it's helpful, right? There are students, for instance, with special educational needs who need smaller, high dosage, smaller learning environment and higher dosage tutoring, and they should be able to pursue that kind of engagement in our state schools and anywhere else. So I want to feel as though you can make the choice that's helpful for you, but I never want you to believe that the only way you can get to a Russell Group institution, if that is what your desire is, is that you need to go to a private school. That is a myth that um, folks want us to believe about state schools. And if we invest exactly. in that myth, we too disinvest or undermine state schooling. Does that make sense? Thank you for listening to our podcast. That's all we had time for today. If you'd like to listen to this episode or other episodes, please head to our website at www.eastlondonconnect.org and you'll find a podcast section. We're really glad you were able to join us and hopefully have you on the next one. Thank you very much for listening.